music uh, relates to people in different ways, but that's, every once in a while you kind of go, that's a song that's pretty inspired. Um, something that uh, really just gets us back on track. And you know, it is a national holiday today, and I don't know if you knew that. That's right, it's Super Bowl Sunday. <clears throat> Talked to my daughter, my youngest daughter, who is in Italy. She's in Rome, Italy, studying there for her semester overseas. And uh, talked to her yesterday, and I guess a whole bunch of them, there's pockets all over there that are people going to be staying up at 12, you know, game starts at about 1 a.m. in the morning or something like that. They'll be staying up. And So um, are you a Patriot or a Giant fan? Well, we won't go into that. Let's just uh, probably forget that. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the opportunity to pause and to allow you to, to stop us in the middle of, of a busy week and get ready for another and I would ask that you would take these words and, and use these words to help us um, get connected to you and experience and understand who you are and what it means to, to walk with you. So God, take my words, I pray, and, and use your word from, from the Bible to give us insight into who you are. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you remember back in about 2004, there was a case of a number of cases called SARS. Remember what SARS is? It's a severe acute respiratory syndrome or otherwise known as the bird flu. It's a special strain of that H5N1 and it was um, moving, they thought, in, in a worldwide epidemic fashion. And, and there were all kinds of reports. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization both issued alerts at that time, and they even asked in Minnesota the state officials, uh, especially health officials, to start watching for possible cases that would fit the pattern of this bird flu. Well, since that time, um, especially even just like in January, uh, January 10th, I, I noted an, an article that says fears of the flu pandemic originating from the deadly H5N1 bird flu virus were overblown and it goes on to say that they've done a study and at the end of it it says while downplaying concerns of a pandemic the bird flu will always be a risk not just to h5n1 but also other strains that could mutate and become more virulent we just need to be aware and 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 be ready in case some kind of flu epidemic occurred well i thought i would kind of just kind of update that and as i was looking through it I found that last Thursday, the New York Times uh, reported that in a village in central Java, bird flu has seemed to once again begin to spread from house to house. In fact, when that first alert was given, there were about 200 cases. Well, this report says that within a short period of time, the death toll in that area had had gone from house to house to about 101 cases. I started wondering, whoa. And then the Associated Press headline reads, Bird Flu Continues to March Four Years Later. And it gets me to start wondering. Well, there is this sense that this, this flu, they think, and the fear of it was bigger, bigger than they thought. But there is still this concern of some kind of epidemic, some kind of viral pandemic infection that could have deadly consequences. So when you think about that, you have to ask yourself, as the world was put on alert about some mystery illness that they weren't even sure what it was, now four years later they're still tracking and watching it, and they're making statements, you've got to be careful, could there be something else? 
you ask yourself, what do you do to prepare for some kind of physical infection that could be deadly? The World Health Organization is asking that question. The Center for Disease Control in not just this country, but in other countries are asking that question. How do you stop an epidemic outbreak of a potentially lethal illness? Well, I don't have the answer for that. But as we look at Titus, there is a similar question that that Paul is dealing with when he speaks to Titus. If you look at verse 10, he actually ends verse nine. He says, I want you to call together leaders who have the ability to understand the truth. At the end of it, he says, who have been taught so that they can encourage others by sound or healthy teaching or truth and refute those who oppose it. Beginning in verse 10, he says, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching what they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. He basically makes this statement to to Titus. He says here, this is not some kind of physical infectious outbreak that's taking place, but I want you to be aware of the fact that there are often and can be, and there were in Paul's life as he went and started one church after another, and he would start these new churches. They would be like infants that were beginning to grow, and one of the worst things that can happen is for an infant to get some kind of highly contagious infection because they are usually most susceptible, correct? And he's saying, I've gone from church to church, and as I do that, there's a group that follows me, and they're highly infectious with the spiritual teaching that is spreading, that is causing all kinds of people to lose a sense of what it means to know Jesus, to walk in the freedom that he's given, and to begin to understand and experience the grace that comes through a relationship that is of faith. And so, Titus, I'm going to give you a game plan. I'm going to share with you some things that you need to do in order to keep this kind of infectious spiritual disease from beginning to spread from one place to another. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 of this, of this passage, Paul says, These people are ruining whole households by the things they ought not to teach. That's how infectious this was. Chapter 13, he says, rebuke, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound, or the word means actually healthy, a full-fledged faith in God and his love. And then he uses the word corruption a number of times, saying these kind of spiritual truths, when they get into a person's faith and system and they begin to believe false things, they begin to corrupt the very things that God is seeking to develop and grow within you. And so he says, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences have been corrupted. They're decaying by these truths. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. The end result is a spiritually diseased soul that has been destroyed. It's detestable, useless, and, as I titled this message, good for nothing. That's what, that's what Paul is basically saying. Because it causes these people to launch into a lifestyle where they have been taught now in such a way that they begin to live in fear, they live in guilt, and that fear and that guilt causes them to be afraid to live out in the world. It causes them to be afraid to mix in the culture. Instead of actually being integrated in the culture and bringing the truth and the love and the grace of God, they begin to build walls. They get afraid because they have to follow certain things because it's by doing these things and by what people see and what they're watching by your external actions. They're either in or they're out. And Paul says, this has got to stop. We've got to stop this right now. It's got to be cut out. 
And so the very first thing I want to share with you that he says in his game plan, how do you stop an outbreak spiritually that infects the soul and causes disease, that causes a death within these small bodies? He was starting within your own spiritual life, within the spiritual life of this church. He says there's three things that I'm going to share with you. First is you cut off the source of the problem. And then he goes and he moves to the solution of that problem. And then he says, here, I want you to deal with some realistic expectations that you can, you can uh, expect when you start to work and move into this Titus. So how do you do this? How do you do, do stop something that's destroying maybe a person's faith or a church or, or, or a group of people's faith? You cut off the source of the problem. In fact, the World Health Organization actually has stated that risk from this H5N1 strain although greatly diminished, could be eradicated in the countries which have become reservoirs for this bird flu. You can treat the people who get it and really help them. You have to do that. But those are really symptoms of something greater, and that's getting to the source. We know that to be true in all kinds of different areas in our life. There are other examples of that. For instance, in physical health. There's some doctors in this church, and I said the first service, I'll say again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but... When you have high blood pressure, you go to the doctor, and they usually help treat some symptoms. They'll give you some medication, and they'll talk about you need to get these symptoms in order. But they always come back, and they go to what? The source. They ask questions like, there's things around your lifestyle. Are you exercising? Anybody asked that question before? A few of you laugh. Are you overeating? No, not in this crowd. I'm sure no. Drinking too much coffee? Is there a lack of rest? They ask these kind of questions that get to the source. A number of years ago, I was on a task force on this western Hennepin area because there was a drug problem within, within the schools. And they had been trying to deal with it in one sense in a symptomatic way. They would try and help the kids who were actually getting hooked on it or taking the drugs. But I remember when I went to this task force and on it there was a number of uh, uh, detectives and others who were <clears throat> trying to work with this. In fact, there was, it had, at that point there had been the Hopkins area had really had a, 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 a contagion of it as well as out in other areas and some of the schools out in the west. And I remember one of the policemen said, you know what, there are three individuals that if we could stop those individuals, we could dry up the whole thing. And they went on to share that these three individuals were in high school. And these three individuals who were giving all this out were from three very wealthy families who through their wealth were protecting them and causing and, and were living in denial and they couldn't do a thing because they had to somehow get some evidence and do different things to trap them to be able to get those kids to stop it. I went, whoa. And then I went on this, I guess a little tidbit in here. I found out one of the places that most of the drugs were being passed and, and the deals were being made, you know where it was happening? In church parking lots between 9 and noon on Sunday mornings. I mean, if you want to deal, I mean, go to a place where supposedly everybody's good. Where there's all kinds of activity that are going on. Who would suspect that? But they said the way to get to the symptoms is, you know, you can help the people who, and the kids that are on it. And you need to do that. You need to deal with the, the symptoms of high blood pressure. But you've got to go to the source. And so Titus is told by Paul, here's what you need to do. You need to deal with the problem and the source of it. And the source of the problem is there are some teachings that are coming from some people who you need to deal with. And you need to deal not only with those false teachers, but you need to deal with the teaching itself. Because the teaching is the source that's causing the difficulties within these situations. 
And so if you look at chapter 1, verse 10, Paul describes these false teachers and he uses three terms to describe them. He calls them rebellious, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. And then he adds, especially those of the circumcision group. And all of it is for the sake of dishonest gain. That's the picture he gives of them. Rebellious, the idea that they don't subordinate themselves to authority. In chapter 1, verse 7, when he is saying, bring a team of people, of of leaders around you, he gave some qualifications. And one of the qualifications in verse 7 of chapter 1 is this. He says, one of the first things to watch for is a person who is overbearing. You see, both rebellious and overbearing indicate a person that is self-willed and they're out to please themselves. This person wants their own way. They become angry. In fact, one of the other things he says is quick-tempered. They become angry when they don't get it their way. And even when authority says no or indicates that what they're doing or what they're pursuing or what they're teaching is not right or it's wrong or they need to discuss it, they don't want to discuss it because they're a law unto themselves. If you look at the end of verse 10, Paul says this is particularly true of the circumcision group. There is a group of people who are not moving by the Spirit of God, who are not living a life where they understand that it's the grace and the love of God that He's crazy about us. And because He's crazy about us, He sent His Son to save us so that we could walk in this new life. They were the kind of people who were setting up uh, some kind of do's and don'ts and regulations in order that if people would do these things, then they were in. So that people would live with fear, watching and making sure that, you know, I'm doing okay. So you'd look at my life and go, if I did this or that, am I in or out? And I go, what a horrible way to live. And yet that infects so many churches. And Paul says... You let that kind of group get in there and begin those teachings, and they pass it on to people, which happened in this case. There were now teachers in Crete who were beginning to teach us. Even some of those, Paul would go to a place, they would follow the circumcision group, and they would set up their own disciples. And those disciples often would be people who would be very gifted, and they were the kind of people who weren't transformed because of the love and grace of God. They were the kind of people who, who liked to live by religious rules and all these things, and then they would set it up so that they would, through their teaching, profit by it. So if you look at verse 10, he says the group they call, he calls as a circumcision group. You'll find that often in many different places throughout the New Testament. This group of false teachers which infected the church everywhere Paul went. They were self-willed, rebellious group of people. And they were worse than the flu during Minnesota January. It was spreading like that. Look at Galatians 2. Last week I read this, and as I was preparing it this week, I've I, I got to go back to this passage of Scripture. Galatians 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, says Paul, this time with Barnabas. See, Paul and Barnabas, they were beginning to see people who weren't circumcised, who were people who were just responding to the grace of God through Jesus Christ in faith and beginning to live this confident, abundant life of God. And he says, I went up with, with them, and I also took Titus with me. In verse 2, I went in response to a revelation. God revealed something to him. God works like that. And set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be what? Circumcised. To come under the knife, so to speak, so that he could be a person who responded to God and yet had this sign that people could look and go, he's one of us.
And not even Titus. Verse 4, this matter arose because some false brothers listen this, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves again. Oh, what a horrible thing. I don't want to be a part of a body that is, is, is externally trying to make these distinctions that you're in and you're out. And he says, we did not give in to them. I love this. This is what caught me last week. We did not give in to them for a moment. Would not budge on this point. So the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. I like Paul. He's, I don't really care. God does not judge. Listen, God does not judge by external appearance. And those men added nothing to my message. And go to verse 11. Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. These certain men who came from James were of the circumcision group. They came, and it says, when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Listen to this, because he was afraid of those who belonged to what group? This legalistic religious group. That was saying you're, you're, you're one of Christ's followers, you're one of the in-group if you do X, Y, and Z. And so he says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Now catch this, this is how contagious this infectious disease is. So that their hypocrisy, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I mean, he was a guy who really got it from the beginning. He went and got Paul because of what God was doing. I want to tell you, the hypocrisy of living a religious lifestyle, of setting up external markers that say this person's in and out, is really dangerous. Go to, to, to Acts 15, the consul at Jerusalem. If you don't have your Bible or you don't want to, just, we, I put them up here so you can just follow along. This consul of Jerusalem was called together because there was, right now at this point, there was a desire to kind of make clear what does the gospel really mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And the circumcision group had refused to to submit and obey to what the consul, the disciples and the apostles and prophets and others came together and said, this is what God has to say. So verse 1 of chapter 15 of Acts, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. But I think he's really interesting about this is that Jesus came to just to get away from that completely. In fact, what really is interesting, Jesus turned the in and out groups on its ear. In fact, the people who thought they were in were the Pharisees, Sadducees and all these others who thought they had their act together. And by their arrogance, arrogance and pride were setting up these burdens so that people had to live under this yoke of slavery. So that if they did these certain things, then God was going to operate in their life. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, you guys are really on the out, the in group. You know who the in group was? Tax collectors, prostitutes, was caught in adultery, people who would stand up and say, I'm a sinner. Not that Jesus was saying, go out and live that way. He was saying people who were willing to recognize that it wasn't by the things they were doing, but it was by what God himself did for them that alone, that's what saved them. They believed in what God did, and because they believed God loved them so much, the love of God penetrated and began to purify their heart so that they would begin to live that out. And they would live it in such a way and with such confidence that they didn't build walls around them. They weren't motivated by fear and guilt by what other people would think. They went out and they actually integrated within the culture around them, got involved in the lives of people around them, not 
not being afraid of being stained, but actually knowing by their heart this walk that God has called them to, that they were able to, with the Holy Spirit, confidently move into places, and God is able to do great things. And so it says in verse, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. This church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now catch this. You might want to even just mark this in your mind. If you have your Bible, just write this down. Verse 8. God who knows the heart. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Listen to this. For he purified their hearts by faith, not by what they did. Oh, man, that's how I want to live. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? He's basically saying, you know, when people come into relation with Christ, they're like, you know what, their act isn't going to be together. And he's not talking here to Paul. Paul's not saying to Titus, those are the people you need to rebuke, etc. We get that so wrong in the church. We come and go, you know, we, we find a person, let's use, I'll just use this as an example, a person who smokes and you, <gasps> rather than, you know what, it's a habit and we try and understand is there what, you know, and, and help people be free from any habit, whether it's that or overeating or whatever it is. Greed. But we get into these little pet ones and we kind of think those are, you know what? The life that is by faith comes with an understanding that I need God. And because they make this admission they need God, God begins through his Holy Spirit to purify their hearts as we begin to understand and move and walk with them as we get to know them. Not from an outside, but I mean in more accountable relationships so that you can help people as they work through the, 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 the hard work of God loving and healing wounds that have been caused from their past or whatever it is. So they begin to, by their heart, respond to God and walk in faith. That's what it's about. And so, this is more than I wanted to share here. Gosh. Okay. Um, no, we believe it through the grace of, of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That's it. It's the only requirement. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul talking about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Verse 19, I'll hit down there. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. The official position agreed upon by the church was it was merely by grace as you trusted in the work of God and his love for you. But this group of people could care less. Didn't matter if that was the position in the church for years or for even a short period of time. It didn't matter. They were rebelliously opposed it. And as he calls them, he says they were mere talkers. 
They were more eloquent and they were smooth in their talking. They persuasively could argue with their words. In fact, they were getting people caught up with all their wisdom as they talked about Jewish myths and, and regulations and all these things. And they would prey upon people who didn't quite understand that it was merely walking in faith by grace and it wasn't about getting into this fear thing where people would judge you, etc. They didn't have that kind of understanding. So they became fearful and guilty and they used their wisdom to make them bow to what they wanted. They were just mere talkers, he said. Their words, in fact... They didn't have the ability to transform lives, but conform lives. And that happens all the time in the church. You can go to churches all the time. You can find people who are conformed to the way everybody wants them to look. But real work of the Holy Spirit that works in the life that is heart of a heart that is pure is one that begins to be transformed so that their hearts begin changed. And what you see in their life is this. You begin to see an evidence of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The mark of a person who is following Jesus Christ isn't even the amount of converts they had. These people had lots of converts. It's not the giftedness that you could have, whether you teach or preach or play an instrument or do something in that way. It's always the mark of the character is changing. You see in the person a growing love and a growing sense of joy and and this peace that that rules in their heart and begins to um, cause them to act out of peace. And there's patience that's growing. You see all these kind of establishments in their being, and you see that kind of maturity. He says these were just mere talkers. They claim to know God, verse 16, but by their actions they deny him. They look religious, but it's all about performance. And in fact, they're really deceivers. Because what it was all about, if you look at the end of verse 11, is it was for dishonest gain. These people, as it says, must be silenced because they're ruining whole households. By teaching things that ought not to be teached for the sake of dishonest gain, they actually taught for a fee. These were people who were set up by this circumcision group. They were Cretans. They were people from Crete who came along, got the teaching from the circumcision group, were gained as, in a sense, apostles and prophets and teachers within that group. And they went around and they taught people. And why they ruined whole households, it wasn't like church like this where we all sat around and one of these guys stood up and taught. You know how they ruined whole households? In that day in Crete, if you were to teach your children in a Greek culture, you would often, especially the more wealthy ones, would hire a tutor. And the tutor would come in and begin to teach the kids. And that's how it would infect the whole household. And they were excited because they would come in and charge large amounts of money to some of these people in order to get in their homes to get their money and then begin to infect them with their teaching. And often these were people who were pretty established in the community. So it was a pretty good plan. They came into an area. They began to work that plan. They began to get into the wealthy, prominent people who had position and power. They got into those homes and they were destroying the work of the church because of that. And Titus is told by Paul, you've got to stop it. Go to the source. And so how do you go to the source? You begin to move to a solution. The second thing he calls them to do, and he says, you need to first honestly assess the situation. you got to take a look at the individuals, and you got to see their character, and you got to deal with their character for the way it is. And so in a moment, he gets into that. But what he was telling Titus, I think, is really important for all of us, and that's this. You know, have you ever been in a situation where you just hope it's going to go away and get better? He's saying, don't do that, Titus. He wrote to Timothy, don't do that. This is a situation where you have to honestly assess the situation and begin to work on it. And you've got to do it. You've got to have the guts to stand up to say this is what's important and right. And he's not saying, again, here's where we get it wrong. There are going to be people here, the circumcision group, there are people who are more religiously oriented are going to say, we've got to deal with these people who are young in their faith or maybe they seem to be not walking the line that we want them to walk. He's talking about the ones who claim to know and teach. 
That's the ones. And so he goes to him and he says to this, assess it honestly. Look at verses 12 and 13. And he goes on and he says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. There's a reason why he made this statement. <clears throat> Paul does what Jesus often did. He wanted to put his, 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 uh, those who he was trying to pin into a corner, he wanted to get them in a corner. Because often when you, you lay a charge like Paul was doing there, they might come back as Cretans and go, oh, you know what? He's not one of us. You know, he just doesn't like us because we're not, you know, we're not like him. And he goes, no, in fact, I will quote a prophet philosopher who you guys hold in great honor and treat Epimenides. I'll quote Epimenides for you, who says just what he wrote there. And he, he basically says this is the, the general character of the, of, of, the, of the people there. And he lists threefold charge against them. He says they're liars, they're evil brutes, and they're lazy gluttons. That's what their lifestyle was showing. And Paul isn't off base here. In fact, if you look at the time when he was writing in Crete, um, they were known in, in Crete. Those many that, that culture there was a very um, it was a, it was a very immoral um, culture. There was a lot of self indulgence. So what was happening, I think, in this group is they were coming along. They were taught that if you were circumcised, you're saved, and then you were circumcised, you're saved. You can kind of live how you want. So then they were just taking on the culture on themselves, and so there was no transformation taking their heart. So he says, this is what you guys are right. You're liars. You're evil brutes. You're led by your passions and appetites. And he goes on and he says, you're just lazy. You're out for gain by just teaching these mere words. In fact, in, in that culture in that day, um, so notorious was their reputation of those in Crete for being liars and for falsehood that the, word, the actual word Crete in the Greek became synonymous with the word lie. And the way I understand it is I remember when I was in junior high, I went overseas, I think it was in Europe, somewhere in Europe, and we were talking with some people who were um, in one of those European countries, and, and they asked me where I was from, and I said from Chicago, because that's where I lived, and you know what they immediately did? Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. Dad, what are they going bang, bang, bang for? He goes, Al Capone or the whole gangster thing. They were, see, Chicago got known for what? Well, Crete was known for the same thing. They were known for these, these oratorical liars, these guys who'd get up and they'd teach and these kind of things. And he says, you basically, through this circumcision group, have allowed this group to come in and they're destroying whole households. And so he assesses their character and then he does a second thing. He says, what you need to do now, Timothy, is you need to enlist others to help you. This is not a job you do alone. When the outbreak of that SARS took place, you didn't see one person running around the world trying to get everybody to act, right? It would be silly to see this person frenzied running around trying to help, watch out. The sky is falling kind of thing. What happened was the World Health Organization called the U.S. Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention, and then also a number of other ones throughout the world, and they enlisted the media, the medical field, and every related group to stop the contagion. And he's basically saying within the church the same thing. You do the same thing. You enlist people. You get the groups together and you say, this kind of thing is not going to disease our people. It's stopping at every level. So you honestly assess the situation as you move to the solution. You then enlist others. And then the third thing he basically says is you've got to combat the lies with the truth. The situation, he says in verse 13 and 14, calls for a sharp rebuke. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound or healthy in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths, which were a bunch of endless genealogies that people would go, am I connected to so-and-so and so-and-so? It's all about position and power and all that stuff. And then the other one was about, he says, commands. Um, literally, uh, he says, uh, rebuke them sharply or to the commands of those who reject the truth. The idea here is this legalistic rules. If I do this, I do that. To Timothy said they were telling people they need to abstain from marriage. They were telling people they had to eat certain foods. They had to worship on a certain day. There are all these kind of little commands. And if you did these things, and he's saying, you know what? All that does is build pride, arrogance, and set you in the wrong direction. It kills the spirit. And so he combated the lies with truth. And that rebuke um, is this quick, hard, decisive strike. He was not saying in this situation with this kind of thing, uh, just be gentle. No, you do that with people who are growing in their faith. But people who are going around telling people this is how to live. You want to rebuke them sharply. The word rebuke is similar to the quick action of a doctor with a knife operating to remove an aggressive cancer before it spreads and corrupts the entire body. Cut it out. And then he says, this, this is the game plan. You go to the source. You move to a solution where you assess the situation honestly and you enlist other people and then you do what needs to be done with some kind of immediate sharp action, he then says, I want to encourage you with some very realistic expectations. Verses 15 and 16, he says, Timothy, you've got to make your expectations real and clear because when you do this, you need to understand and not expect that everyone's going to turn around and go, oh, yeah, thanks for helping me out on that. He basically says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, verse 15, nothing is pure. <clears throat> In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, they deny them. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any, doing anything good. You have to realize that purity of heart is the matter. And if you do come to someone and you really give them this sense of, here's what's really the truth, the person whose heart is pure is going to move into purity. But the person who doesn't care, you'll see it. So just be realistic when this happens. There's going to be people. When you ever you confront in a church or in a situation, you confront a teaching that is really about legalism and is about really moving away from the grace of God. Whenever you confront a teaching about the flesh that is combining our strength with God's strength, that if we just did this, then you can bet, you can bet that there are some who are going to resist and fight and they're going to do everything they can because they do not want to move into the spirit because the spirit and the flesh are at what? War. So be realistic. If you want to be a church, if you want to be a people that's set free to walk by the spirit of God, recognize the fact that there will come a point where those who are corrupt will be separated and there will be a purity um, for those who want to hear and walk in God who will begin to move in that because that's really what he's saying. And he's basically, in a sense, quoting Jesus when he talked to the Pharisees. He said, it's not what goes into a man, what he eats or drinks that contaminates him. Corruption begins from where? The heart. <clears throat> That's why he says, for he purified their hearts by faith in that Acts 15 passage. And so I just had this question as we move into communion and conclude this. We need to ask ourselves as a body. We need to ask ourselves personally. Are we about walking and moving into the things of the spirit? 
Are we about a church that's, a, that's setting the heart free to respond in faith, to move in grace, to set people who are seeking to know him with mistakes and, and blemishes and sins on their life just like yours and mine? Are we willing to help them move into that? Or are we going to try and do like the circumcision group that says, if you do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and then we'll accept you, and then it'll be okay. Does your life evidence God's forgiveness? Not so much here, catch this, not so much in things like going to church, giving a tithe, serving in a ministry, but does your life evidence the forgiveness and power of God through actions that come through a character and a heart that's growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness? You're more dependable. There's more self-control developing in your life. That's the mark of a heart that relates to God by faith, believing only in his grace and the spirit of God coming in and empowering that faith to live. That's what this meal that we're going to celebrate here is all about. It's all about a life that was given for you and for me that said in the death on that on, on the cross, all about the cross saying this cross, this painful place was about the fact that God is so crazy about you and me that he takes you right where you're at. And he accepts you by his grace and he makes a promise that he will put within you your whole, his Holy Spirit. And as you pay attention to that and you begin to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and prompting you, as you begin to understand more fully God's word, as you begin to integrate your life with others who are accountable to him, as you begin to actually flesh this out, guess what? God will cause your character to become like him. You will actually be transformed so that you'll be more loving and joyful and peace-filled and all those things that are attractive to people out there and not a bunch of rules that it caused people to go, that's the last thing I want. Because people want a relationship and not a religion. And that's what this is about. And that's what I'm going to invite you to be a part of. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and I'm going to ask at this time if the team who serves us would come forward. But with your, with your just head bowed, if you want to do that, but I just want you to respond for a moment and examine your life. Because communion is all about not trying to be worthy because you had a good week and you were really good for God. Communion, you folks, means you are in a communing relationship with him and with other people because of his grace and love. And that if you know if there's something that is not right or is out of place, there's a commitment in your heart that says, I want that purified. And if that's your heart and your desire, that's what this meal's about. Father, thank you.